Well, as I said, go ahead and take your outline out in front of you, and you'll notice we're going to walk through connecting the dots in Romans. I want to continue on in, in just this kind of a parenthetical pause, so to speak, in looking at the book of Romans. It was the year 1898. A young man by the name of Ben decided to leave the east and go west. He wanted to find his own fortune and make it. After about eight years had gone by, he had accumulated more than 300 acres of land and over 300 head of livestock, had built a very comfortable farmhouse, had grown his wheat and corn and vegetables. And after eight years, he decided it was time. So he put a letter in the newspaper of New York. It said this, Wanted. A good woman willing to be a pen pal. Marriage is a possibility for the right woman. Before long, he began to receive letters from a lady named Molly. And as they exchanged letters back and forth, why young Ben fell in love with Molly, reading her letters. And then the day came. Young Ben stood at the Kansas City train station waiting to meet Molly for the very first time. A number of women were coming off the train, and suddenly Ben hollered out, Molly, over here. And looking his way, she smiled and walked over to him. She offered his hand. They held hands briefly. And then she said to him, How did you know who I was? In which he promptly reached back into his overalls back pocket and pulled out a clump of letters. He said, from these here letters. But she said, there are no pictures in them. And finally, a little awkward, he dropped his head for a moment. And he said, oh, yes, there are. There are lots of pictures in your words. You see, it spent hours poring over her words, looking at every little clue her letters would tell him of who Molly really was. He had fallen in love with her words, her words that had painted a portrait of Molly. I couldn't think of a more touching and moving reminder of what God's Word does for us. God's love letter paints a remarkable picture of His incomparable portrait of His love for us, His grace, His mercy, His righteousness, His goodness, His sovereignty. It paints a picture of his majestic splendor and healing grace in our lives. And yet, there are no pictures, are there? Just words. Words are powerful, aren't they? Words describe. Words help us understand. Words have meaning and power in them. And when we read God's word, we soon discover as you look at the Bible, there is no God at all in comparison to Him in all of creation and all of religion. There is no one like Him. God says in Isaiah, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? And of course the answer is none. The Bible is the Mona Lisa, if you will, of the one true God. There is no one like Him. Well, today, we're going to begin part two of connecting the dots in the book of Romans. We've taken a, a, a sort of parenthetical pause. We've walked through chapters one through five, verse by verse at this point. And I want to take a, just a pause and look back at where we've come from because there are some powerful words that the Apostle Paul has used that paint a picture of who this God is that has stepped out of eternity into time, clothed himself in humanity, and has rescued us from our sin, who died on the cross for us as our sin bearer. And Paul has painted some amazing pictures, or using words, using, painting amazing pictures of who this God is. And what Paul has done at this point in chapters 1 through 5, in effect, is painted this, this incredible, masterful picture with, with brush in one hand and palette in the other. The one picture that the Apostle Paul has painted is one that is, is startling, 
one that is, is repulsive. It is a picture of sin-fallen mankind. All have sinned and fallen short of the intended glory that God created man to have. And Paul physically shows, or uh, graphically shows, the destructive effects of sin's work in our lives, like, like sewage in our line, lives that flow beneath the streets. All are sinners. All deserve God's just wrath. There are no ex- ex- exceptions. We're all broken beyond repair, without hope, utterly hopeless and helpless. Like Humpty Dumpty, our lives cannot be put back together again. And we are in desperate need of a Savior. So destructive is the ravaging of sin in our lives. But that's only part of the picture. A second part of the picture the Apostle Paul has painted is a brightly contrasting picture from the sin-disfigured Dorian Gray, if you will, of mankind. He paints a vivid picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sin-rescuing, our sin-bearing, our sin-conquering Savior. God knows our plight. He is not distant. He is near. He is not silent. He has spoken through His Son. And in one magnificent gesture of love and grace, He reaches down through His Son, Jesus Christ, and breaks the shackles of our bondage and sets us free. Now, I want you to understand what Paul has done in five short chapters. What he has done is he has assessed accurately with inspiration from God, both having clear insight and crisp logic. He has assessed and explained what is the problem in our world and what is the problem with mankind in just five short chapters, all of which all the volumes of psychology and psychiatry and medicine and all the volumes of religion could never do, Paul has done in five short chapters. And in doing so, he has given us a number of very important, powerful Word pictures that we need to understand because they show us a picture of who this sin-rescuing, this sin-bearing, this sin-conquering God is. And I didn't want to move too quickly through the book of Romans. I want us to pause and understand these words because when you hear these words, you're going to think these are ivory tower 50-cent words. But they're not. They're words the Apostle Paul has specifically chosen by the very inspiration of God to be placed in his word that we would understand them. Why? Because they paint a marvelous and majestic picture of who this God is that has rescued us. Today I want to look at just two of the four words we're going to walk through. And you see, we just looked at that one word I'm going to mention in just a moment. But I want to tackle it again because I, I felt we needed to come back to it one more time. But words such as justification, imputation, propitiation, reconciliation. Can you say those words with me? Justification, imputation, propitiation, reconciliation. You see, I have never heard those words at all. But they're there. They're in the text that God has inspired that the Apostle Paul wrote. And they're incredibly important words that we understand. Paul chose these words intentionally because they graphically paint a picture of who this God is that we need to know who rescues us from our sins. You see, words are powerful, aren't they? You know that with your children, how many times have you spoken to your children and your children come back later in their lives and say, do you remember when you said this, mom and dad? And you may or may not remember, but those words are powerful because they etched an indelible picture, not only just in the mind, but in the heart of your child. The right words are powerful, and they leave an incredible imprint on our lives. Mark Twain once quipped, he said, the difference between the right word and the wrong word is the difference between a lightning bug and lightning. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? When you have the right word, it leaves an indelible print, a memory, not just in our minds, but our hearts as well. And that's what God wants to do with these words. So let me just kind of tackle these words and listen to these words as we begin to unpack not just what they mean, but I want you to look for the picture of who it is This God who is our God, uh, sin-conquering, sin-bearing Savior. Justification. We looked at this last week. And justification, I've said so many times, you probably have it down by memory now. Justification means this, that God declares the believing sinner to be right with him based on their faith in Jesus Christ. 
So God says, the moment you say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your Savior who died on the cross for your sins, you say, I believe that, Lord. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. God says instantaneously, it is an act, not a process. God says, I now declare you right with me. We saw last week that it is, it is not a process. It is, in fact, an instantaneous act. It is final, it is permanent, it is eternal. God will never go back and say, you know, I changed my mind. It is a gift of God's grace. It is by faith. You can only attain it by faith and faith alone in Christ. It is a new life. You become a brand new person when you are given God's righteousness. Now, justification means two things. It means, one, that God now declares you legally right with him, like a judge saying, now your, crim- your crimes are forgiven. But God does something even more. He more than simply declares you righteous. He gives you his righteousness as well. And therefore, the Apostle Paul could say in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we now have peace with God and we have the peace of God because we have his righteousness in our lives as well. So let's just kind of unpack this practical aspect of what does justification mean then? Well, it means this. Justification answers the important question, how can I know that I'm right with God? How do I know that? We've already established this by putting our full trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified, how? By faith, apart from works of the law. This word dikaiao, or justification, is a powerful word that Paul uses. He uses it some 15 times the entire book of Romans, but 11 times in just the first five chapters. And it means that God has now declared the sinner to be right with him. It is foundational and instrumental in understanding now what it means that I'm right with God. Because you see, I think there are a lot of believers, and you may be there today, that you say, yeah, I want to know that I'm right with God, but I have doubts. I have questions. Let me ask you this question. How many of you had a mess up, a blow up, a mistake, something went wrong this last week and you don't want to tell anybody about it? You feel a little embarrassed. Maybe you had a step back, a step back, maybe three or four steps back. Justification means this. Justification means that God fully loves me fully accepts me, and that I am fully pleasing to God. It means that I am eternally and permanently right with God from the moment I trusted Christ forward. Now, what's so vital for us to understand before we move on is this. I cannot hammer on this enough because I've met so many people and so have you When you ask them, how do you be right with God? They will tell you, you go to church, you get baptized, you get money, you do good things, you try to be a good person. Wrong! The only way we are right with God is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul has been hammering away at throughout the first five chapters of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, he says, listen, he says, the greatest patriarch of them all, Abraham, how is he made right with God? He says in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, what does this scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Paul is saying, how was Abraham saved? For that matter, how was every saint in the Old Testament saved? How is every saint in the New Testament saved? How are we saved? What Paul is establishing through Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews, is he's saying that Abraham was saved by faith and so is everyone else who is saved after him. We're saved by faith alone in Christ. Now, why do I hammer on that? Because, listen, we have a, 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 a disposition to want to do things to earn God's favor, to somehow earn our salvation. Breaking news. But the fact that you're in church today is not going to make God any more pleased with you than if you weren't. (gasps) The pastor just said that. If you're basing your attendance in church this morning, thinking somehow that's going to reconcile or bring God's favor in your life in a saving way, you're wrong. You're wrong. 
If you think that somehow all the good things you've done in your life are going to somehow outweigh the bad things and God's going to look at your life and say, you know, the scales are kind of tipping in your favor, so you're okay. You're wrong. You're wrong. You say, well, I got baptized when I was three years old. It doesn't matter if you're 300 years old and you get baptized. Baptized doesn't save you. You say, well, but I've done so many good things. Doing good things doesn't save you. Oh, but you say, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> Being a Baptist isn't going to save you. Well, I'm a Methodist then. Being a Methodist isn't going to save you. I'm an Episcopalian. Episcopalian isn't going to save you. I'm a Lutheran. Lutheran isn't going to save you. You see, it doesn't matter what denomination you come from. It doesn't matter what works you've done. It doesn't matter whether you've been baptized. It doesn't matter whether you've been a good person, how many good deeds you've done, or whether you go to church or don't go to church. Now, you should be in church. You grow in your relationship with saints. You grow in your relationship with Christ. It's an obedience to God, but it's not going to earn salvation's favor in your life. What Paul is saying that Abraham was saved by faith is simply saying this, that all of us are saved by faith alone in Christ. That's it. One seasoned Bible teacher once said that man is incurably addicted to doing something for his own salvation. Listen, folks, you are saved by your faith alone in Jesus Christ. And what that means is that you're now justified. And if you're therefore now justified, what that means is that you're fully pleasing, fully accepted, fully loved by God. And if you're fully pleasing, fully loved, and fully accepted, guess what? Now you can be fully secure in God's love for you and your self-worth of who you are. Does this sound inviting to you? Wouldn't it be great to be fully secure, comfortable in your own skin, no matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing, because you know that you're fully pleasing, fully loved, fully accepted by your Heavenly Father. Would that change your life? Would that change your relationships with others? Would that change your relationship with God? You bet it would. And that's why God gives us this word, justification, because he wants us to understand, listen, my child, you're now fully accepted by me. You're fully loved. You're fully pleasing. And therefore, I want you to be fully secure in your relationship with me and your self-worth. It doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. It means that your mistakes will no longer identify you, nor will they jeopardize your identity as God's child. God's acceptance for you is unconditional. Isn't it true? From the day we're born, there is a deep longing inside of us to be loved unconditionally by others, isn't there? We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. We want to be secure in those relationships. But what is the reality of life? The reality of our experience says this, that the love of other people is conditional, not unconditional. It is shallow. It is undependable. It is brittle as walking on thin ice. And there have been times in your life that you've fallen through that ice, you've experienced the rejection of others, and it has devastated your life. And all that has done is created an awareness all the more acute in your life that I long for, I need unconditional love and acceptance in my life. How many times people hop from relationship to relationship to relationship because they're looking for that unconditional love, that security? People will hop from church to church to church looking for that unconditional love and security. You're not going to find it going to a church. You're going to find it in knowing who God is, in his justification of you as a believer. You see, what happens is that we begin to base our self-worth on our performance or the opinions of others. And we're like a yo-yo in our life. We're going back and forth. The pendulum that swings from one extreme to the other. But God's answer for that deep, unconditional security of his love, his acceptance, his pleasure, is justification. He says you no longer have to worry about whether you're fully pleasing or fully loved or fully accepted. I want you to be fully secure. Do you want to believe that? 
You should believe that, and you can give your heart permission to accept that. That's the word picture that Paul is telling us in justification. God says, I love you, worth my son, and I want you to be fully secure in that love. Boy, this came home to me many years ago when I was a young Bible college student. I'll never forget. Uh, I was just beginning to wrap my mind and my heart around these uh, incredible truths. Justification by faith alone. Fully accepted, fully pleasing, fully loved by God. Those were, those were revolutionary thoughts to me. I'd never grown up in that kind of a home or even heard those kinds of things. I remember sitting in premarital counseling and the pastor said, now you're going to learn what it means to love unconditionally. And I'm going, what? Love unconditionally. What is unconditional love? And the moment I heard it, my heart leapt out and said, that's what I want. That's what I've been hungry for. That's what I've been looking for. I'll never forget, though. As I was a young Bible college student, fresh off of active duty, and I was staying in this old farmhouse. Top of the farmhouse is an attic. Had a roommate. His bed was at one end. My bed was at the other end. And when the lights went out at night, it was pitch black dark in there. And the only light in that room was a little string light that hung down from the ceiling. And I had it mastered. I knew exactly where that was. I could find it every single time in the dark. Don't ask me how. I just did. But you have to understand something about my roommate. He was a nervous sort. Wonderful guy. I still love him today. know him. He's got a family now. But uh, he was one of those guys that uh, uh, stewed deeply and long over things that kept him up way, way into, the, into the evening, early morning hours, just thinking. You ever been like that, just couldn't go to sleep, and you just stew over things and stew up? But this is Dave. He did this often. Just happened to be this one night, and the only way I can relay this experience is because he told me about it the next morning. But this was one of those nights that Dave just happened to be stewing over something troubling him, and I reached over and clicked turned on the light and sat up in bed about 2 o'clock in the morning and just stared across the room, a blank stare, didn't say a word, just stared at Dave. Dave noticed that I just stared at him, didn't say a word. He was getting a little nervous. He said, hey, hey, John. I didn't say anything for a long time. And then I said this, I am worthy. To which I broke the silence and Dave said, oh, that is so good, John. That's great. But then I continued to stare with this blank, empty look at Dave. And then I said this, are you? I promptly shut out the light and went back to sleep. I slept through the rest of the night. Dave never got a wink of sleep the entire night. Let me ask you a question. Are you worthy? Are you worthy? I am worthy. Not because of anything in myself that has made me worthy before God. Not because of anything I've done, but because I'm worthy because of my faith in Jesus Christ alone. And therefore God declares me worthy, fully loved, fully accepted, fully pleasing to him. You are worthy if you've placed your trust in Christ. You no longer allow, need to allow insecurity to be an enemy in your life anymore. If God says it, it's done. And what God wants you to learn is what it means to live this life of justification out. And it paints a picture that meets the deepest need in our hearts of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance by our Heavenly Father. Justification. Powerful word, isn't it? Let me give you another word this morning. Propitiation. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 25, he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Our, our, or our justification is a gift by God's grace. But then he goes this, he says, how was this justification made possible? He says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. 
What Paul is saying here is that propitiation means that Jesus satisfied God's holiness so that God could offer grace and mercy to lost sinners. Now, this is a powerful, powerful, powerful word. And I want you to really listen to the practical ramifications of this. You see, if I am fully loved and fully accepted and fully secure, justified in God, then that means this. Propitiation means I no longer need to fear God's punishment. How many of you live in fear that things go wrong in your life and you God's punishing me for things I did wrong? I know it. 20 years ago I did this, now God's punished me. I knew it'd catch up to me. How many of you live like that? You're not going to raise your hand, are you? You see, there is a tendency inside of us, and let me tell you where this tendency comes from, I believe. It comes from understanding justification. If I've lived my life in insecurity uh, of rejection and disappointment and pain in other relationships, I transfer that same insecurity onto my relationship with God. And I think if everybody else has let me down in life, surely God's going to let me down too. But the reality is if I'm justified through Christ, I no longer need to worry about that. And if I'm justified in Christ, that means that God's wrath, his just anger toward my sin was satisfied through Christ's crucifixion on the cross, through the price that he paid for my sin. And that means that if God fully loves me, fully accepts me, and fully pleases him, that I have full security in him, that means I no longer need to fear God's wrath. Let me point something out very important for you to understand. There's a difference between punishment and discipline, isn't there? If you're a parent, you understand what that means. If you work in the law system, you understand what that means. Punishment means there is no reconciliation. You're going to pay for the crime and that's it. But discipline means there is reconciliation. The reason that God will bring discipline in your life is to remove whatever it is separating you and your relationship from him. And so he'll bring discipline in your life to remove that and bring you closer to him. So why do some things go wrong in our life? It's not because God is angry at us and he's exercising his wrath on us, but rather sometimes he is disciplining us. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because he doesn't want anything between us and our relationship with him. So he'll discipline us to remove that. God loves you too much to leave you as you are. He wants to grow you into that relationship. But we have this one promise. Because of propitiation, God says, I will never, 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 never punish you. My wrath was satisfied toward your sin on the cross. That's what that means. I never need to fear God's anger toward me again. Now, there are a couple of misnomers or misleading ideas that people have about this, and we've all run into them one time or another. Some people say, well, if God is so big, why doesn't God just like, Turn a blind eye to these things. Why doesn't God just say, you know what? That's no big deal. It's just a little sin. Just forget about it. We'll go on like grandpa in a wheelchair. Just think everything's fine. Everything's hunky-dory. No. You see, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. In the original language of Hebrew, that is the way of saying that there, you couldn't be holier. It is the utmost of holy there is. God is holy, holy. Holy, holy. The Bible says that God does not change. And what that means, because God is holy and because he does not change, it means that sin has to be paid for. Sin has to be accounted for, even the smallest of sins. Because God is perfect in his character. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 3 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. God cannot break his own law. He cannot be inconsistent with his own character. If he did, he would not be God. So God says in Malachi chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change. And again in verse 6, he says, God is not man that he should lie. Or pardon me, Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should not lie. He is not a human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? God is perfect. He's consistent. And he doesn't change in his word or his character. So God can't turn a blind eye to our sin, although we'd like him to sometimes, wouldn't we? But God says, you don't understand the consequences of that. I can't do that. Your sin has to be paid for. And that's why I sent my son to the cross. 
Another misleading idea that people have is they think, you know, uh, God, the Father, was angry at sinners, and Jesus came along and said, now, Father, don't be angry at them. I'll go down and I'll die for their sins, and I will appease your wrath. Nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all three at work in the plan and the carrying out of our salvation. While it is true that God did turn his back momentarily on Jesus on the cross, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Why? Because Jesus at that moment became sin. We'll look at that in just a moment. But God did not change in his attributes. He changed in his relationship toward us because of our faith in Christ. Now, to help you understand this significance of this incredible word, I want to look at three things. It's history, it's hope, and it's help. What God is doing through this one word, propitiation or atonement or expiation, that we see if you have an NIV, it's atonement. If you have King James, it's propitiation. Some have expiation, meaning that God, God's wrath was simply satisfied for our sin through the work of Christ. God was painting a picture anticipating this thousands of years ago in this one word, and it is powerful. Its history is this. Tucked away in the book of Leviticus, there is a ceremony that was enacted once a year, every year, by the nation of Israel, by the high priest himself. It was on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. The high priest would take off his, his uh, ornate priestly robes, and he had just simple garb on, and he would make a sacrifice, an offering, a uh, sin offering for himself. And then, in Leviticus chapter 16, it says he would take two goats. One was to remain alive, the other was to be sacrificed. And the one goat that was to be sacrificed, he would take the blood of that goat, and he would enter into the Holy of Holies only once a year, and he'd go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of this goat, and he'd go into the Shekinah presence, the glory of God, the very dwelling place of God. And there the Ark of the Covenant, and the top of the Ark of the Covenant was the, was the mercy seat, the lid that covered it. Now, this word, propitiation, or hilasterion, in the Greek, is the exact same word for the lid of that covering, the mercy seat. And the high priest would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat because inside the Ark of the Covenant were, was the law, the Ten Commandments. This blood was atoning, was appeasing God's anger for the people having breaking, broken the Ten Commandments in the previous year. But there's just one problem with this. One year wasn't enough. The very next year, the priests have to do the same thing all over again. Take two goats, sacrifice one, take the blood in, put it on the top of the mercy seat once again. Why? Because the sins were never forgiven by the, by the blood of bulls and goats. But the picture's not done. There was one remaining goat. God said, I want you to take two goats, one to sacrifice, one remaining alive. And so he tells us in Leviticus chapter 16, that the one remaining, the high priest was to take that goat and put his hands on the head of that goat, symbolizing the transfer of the sins of all the nation of Israel onto that goat. And then that goat was to be taken deep into the wilderness and let go. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 25 says, Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquity of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. The living goat was taken so deeply into the wilderness it would never find its way back. In fact, Jewish tradition says sometimes they were led over a cliff just to make sure that goat didn't come back. Why? Because that goat represented all the sins of my past. I don't want to see him again. I don't want to see that goat again. What God was doing was this. This was a powerful word picture of simply speaking into the future that one day, one day the Lamb of God would come and take away the sins of the world. 
You see, when John the Baptist saw Jesus at the Jordan River that day, and he declared in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John understood that is that lamb, that is that goat. He's the one that was taken away for our sins. He is the one who would die for our sins. But the difference is this. Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, it says the problem with the old system, the old covenant, was they had to sacrifice every year again and again and again. And when that high priest died, another high priest had to take over and they had to sacrifice again and again and again. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. But in verse 12, it says this. It says that when Jesus died on the cross, he died once for all. And if you went into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, or even in the holy place, you'd find there's no place for the high priest to sit. Meaning this, the high priest's work is never done. But it says that when Jesus died on the cross, and for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and he went into heaven, it says he sat down. Why? Because the priestly, high priestly work of atoning for our sin was finished. Once for all. So when we say that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, past, present, and future, we say, well, I'm justified because I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. He died on the cross for my sins, giving me God's peace in exchange for his wrath. But also, propitiation means that now God's wrath is completely satisfied because of the blood of Jesus Christ being put on that atonement seat or the mercy seat or the propitiation satisfying God's wrath for my sin. And therefore, I no longer need to worry about God's wrath ever again in my life. And it's done once and for all. And we've already seen God doesn't change. I don't know if you're like me. I suspect you are in some ways. But if you've thought this through a little bit, a dangerous thought indeed is if you think that when you get to heaven and the first thousand years, everything's wonderful. And about a thousand years into glory you make a mistake. Or God's checking his records. He goes, oh, how'd you get in here? You shouldn't have been in here. Or you messed up, you can't stay here any longer. You see, that is our humanity in its flawed understanding of who God is, stepping in, trying to take over. God says, listen, you're my child. I will never change my mind about you. You are fully pleasing, fully accepted, fully loved. You could not be loved more. I don't want you to ever question that again. Stop looking back. You need to look forward and grow in my grace and knowing who I am. You see, some of you have been looking back for a long time, haven't you? Something went wrong in your life and you're looking back, okay, God's mad at me now and I don't know why. He's punishing me. He's not punishing you. He's removing the trash from your life so that nothing can get in the way of your relationship with him. God loves you with an everlasting love, and that will never change. That's the history of the word, and it paints a dynamic and powerful picture. The hope of this is this. This word propitiation is used two more times in Scripture, in 1 John 4 and 1 John 2. 1 John 4 says this, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atonement for our sins. First John 2 says he himself is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't simply die for your sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He made salvation available to all mankind. And when Jesus died, he turned God's throne of judgment into a throne of grace. You see, it was as though when Jesus died on the cross that God the Father laid his hands on his Son and said, all the sins of mankind are transferred to you to bear on their behalf. And at that very moment in time, this scripture came true in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become or might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ absorbed all of our sin 
all of God's wrath on the cross never to be repeated once for all. John says this, such love as this has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for the fear of punishment and that shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love meaning that we do not fully understand his character, his word, and what he's done for us. We no longer need fear of God's punishment. We don't have to worry about a thousand years, even five thousand years into heaven, and God going, oh, you know what? I just remembered something. I made a mistake. No. I can tell you as a father, I think that's why God gives us children. With the Father's heart toward his own children, our relationship may not always be the way I want it, but they will always, always, always be my children. And God says the same thing about you. Sometimes you may not always do everything right, but that will never, ever jeopardize God's love as your Heavenly Father for you. He will always love you. So that's the history, that's the hope, but also the help of it. Paul, or, yeah, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 16, 4, verse 16, which I believe is the Apostle Paul who wrote Hebrews. He says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that, by the way, this throne of grace is God's throne has been turned from judgment now to one of grace. And he says, So that as we come to it, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is the mercy seat of God, the very throne of grace, the very presence of God himself, where we find strength, we find guidance, we find help, we find comfort, we find assurance in time of need. You see, every Sunday we ask you if you want to come forward and pray. And you hear me say, we'd be honored to come before God's throne of grace before with you in that prayer. We're not praying that or saying that simply because it's a nice thing to hear. But literally when you pray, you're coming before the very throne room of God. Because why? Because God has allowed you access through his son, Jesus Christ. And God has allowed access 24-7, 365 days a year. Any moment for any need at any time in your life. God, your heavenly father, says my door is wide open. There is no problem too small. There is no difficulty too menial that I don't welcome you into my presence with whatever that concern is. I'm always here. Do you know God's a good listener? And your listening is not easy, is it? Have you ever tried to listen to people? I mean, seriously, have you ever, as a counselor, have you just tried to listen? Not even as a counselor, have you tried to listen to people? You go, this is hard work. Why? Because listening requires active attention. And oftentimes what we do when we're listening, we're thinking about, okay, what am I going to say to this person? Oh, I don't like what he just said there. And we're thinking about that, but real listening is just listening and letting that person share. But God listens, and he invites us to share those concerns. He invites us to come before his throne of grace. And when we do, he gives us the help and the grace and the mercy that we need in time of need. Can I ask you a question? Is there something in your life that you have forgotten to bring before God? Something that's been weighing on your own heart and your own mind? And you've been stewing over it, you've been troubled over it, you've talked to others about it, you've talked to yourself about it, but you have not come before the Lord about it yet. God says, I want you to know that my throne room has opened you it's where you find grace and mercy and help in time of need, any time. Propitiation. Powerful word, isn't it? So I want us to see the gravity, the incredible profoundness of these words, justification, a propitiation. We're going to look at two more next week and then move on in the book of Romans. But I wanted to pause because I think they're so significant. They anchor our relationship with God in such a way to go, wow, God, you really know what you're doing, don't you? God is amazing, and I want us to catch that 
in our relationship with him as well. Let me leave you with this. Some of you hearing me this morning may be thinking to yourself, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ. I, I believe he lived 2,000 years ago. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he even rose from the grave. And, and there have been moments in my life that, that you know, I, I've had, I don't know, kind of warm moments with God. I just kind of felt close to him. But can I tell you something? You need to hear this. Just because you believe, give mental assent to the facts of the gospel, and just because you say, you know, I've had warm moments, close times with God, is not a saving faith. A saving faith is one that goes beyond simply giving agreement to the facts, simply having those warm experiences with God. A saving faith is far different. Let me explain it this way. Imagine a couple going to get married. And up to this point in their relationship, they'd say, you know, we, we know each other. At least we think we do pretty good. And we've had moments in our relationship that are, you know, we're just, we feel very close. But they're not married. You know why? Because they have not come together willfully and said, I do. What God is looking for from us is not simply giving mental assent to the facts of the gospel, not holding on to those little warm experiences we've had with God, but what God is looking for from you and from me is a heart that willfully comes before him and says, God, I am committing my life to you. Just like when you get married, you are willfully committing your life to that other person. And you're saying, my life will change now. My choices are now different. Why? Because by my will, I am giving my life to this person as his or her spouse. But now I'm giving my life to God. Jesus said it this way, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What God is looking for from us is to stand before him and say, God, I do. I do. With my whole being, I believe and I surrender to you. That's what God is looking for. Can I ask you this question? How many of you have done that? How many of you have come before God and said, I surrender it all to you? My life is no longer my own. I believe that you died on the cross for me and therefore declared me righteous. And now I have peace with you and I have the peace of God. I believe that your death on the cross satisfied your wrath against all my sin permanently and eternally. And that you'll love me, accept me, and that I'm fully pleasing, fully accepted, and fully secure in you. What God has done is answered the deepest needs in our lives. And he wants to do that in yours as well. Will you pray with me? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never, with your heart, come before God and said, Lord God, I believe that you sent your son on the cross, that he died, was buried, and the third day rose again. Lord, I don't simply believe that with mere intellectual agreement, but Lord, I believe that with my heart. Because Lord, I recognize I need to be rescued from my sin. I need a sin bearer, and that's you. I need a sin conqueror, and that's you. Lord, I believe with all my heart. And I ask, Lord, that you'd come into my life, that I would know what it means that I'm now justified, I'm right with you, that I would know what it means that now I no longer need to fear your wrath. Father, help me to know and to experience what it means that I'm fully accepted, fully loved, fully pleasing, and therefore fully secure in you. If you prayed that prayer this morning, 
I want to welcome you into the family of God. Scripture tells us we need to turn from our sins to repent and trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and to do so with our will, with our heart. And if you've done that this morning, I want to congratulate you and welcome you into the family of God. But let me pray for you this morning. Let's face it, not all of us have arrived. We can't say they were all fully secure in God's complete love and acceptance and pleasure. The truth is we live our lives still allowing the past to control, living in the same fears and the same bondage that Jesus died to release us from. Would you come before his throne of grace right now and say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you are my justification. You have made me right eternally and permanently before the Father. And I believe, Lord Jesus, I am fully pleasing, fully accepted, fully loved, and fully secure in you. Jesus, help me now to know how to live that out. That that great truth and the picture of who you are in it would never, ever, ever leave my mind or heart. And so, Lord, when I find myself facing perhaps accusations, moments of insecurity, wondering about your love, Lord, would you recall to memory the great truth of your justification for me. Lord, would you remind me that through your atonement for my sins, I never need fear your wrath against me again, but I can be secure in my Heavenly Father's love and acceptance. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray by the power of your inner working through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would transform our minds, transform our lives to know what it means to live in the glorious, freeing truth of your gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we pray this as your children before you right now. And in Jesus' strong name we pray and we say, Amen. Amen.